Welcome to About in the Band. My name is Ryan Barnack. With me, as always, is the skank and pickle herself, Abigail and Lavy. She's wearing a real big fish hoodie. Abby, say hello to the people. <laughs> I was going to say something, uh, say something ska related, but uh, you're going to get plenty of that in this episode. Um, he's much more than that, but he his name is Aaron Carnes. He wrote a book called In Defense of Ska. He hosts a podcast called In Defense of Ska. He is a ska historian, and it's just we're so happy to connect with him. We've been following his work forever, and this episode is fucking incredible, ladies and gentlemen. Bothering the band with Aaron Carnes. <laughs> Aaron, Howdy. thanks for having me on. <laughs> oh man, uh, we're so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for for doing this. Um, man, it, this is a long time coming, and we both kind of freaked out and 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 virtually high fived when you agreed to do this. Um, because we've been following you. I think you started, you know, before us, and and we've been following you throughout your whole journey since the oh. book and the podcast and the whole thing. So we're happy to have you on bothering the band, Aaron Carnes. I'm happy to be bothered. <laughs> um, Abby and I were just talking about pens. Are you particular about pens? Mm, I like, um, here you go. This is, I know nobody can hear this, but uh, I mean, nobody can, what I'm showing up, but yeah, this is the kind of pen I use. It's like the, it's a point one. It's not, I, I don't know the names, not a roller, but it's got to be a fine point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I carry like a box of like multicolored ones so I can, I feel like purple or green or whatever. That's just. Oh, how... <laughs> the answer is yes. Yes, I am particular. <laughs> and we're back. Call <laughs> in folks. If you, uh, <laughs> if you have an opinion, um, so the answer is yes, you are particular about pens. Yeah, yeah. I used to, um, I mean, I write using my computer now, but in my 20s, I was very much into writing fiction before I got into journalism. And I used to write, um, handwrite all my stories. And I really wow. liked, um, I really mm-hmm. liked the sensation of it. And I liked, you can kind of feel the emotion of it a little stronger. Um, but eventually I kind of, I just, you can't, there's only a, it's just a lot of work to write with your hand and then B you can't edit it. So that's why I stopped <laughs> doing it that way. But I did enjoy it. There was an experience I enjoyed about it initially. And do you have good handwriting? No, and I have be, hor- be horrible, honest. horrible, just horrendous handwriting. Yeah. I mean, if you, I have terrible handwriting. Um, my daughter is left-handed, so it's just when she writes it's all over her mm-hmm. arm. Yeah. Um, are you left-handed or right-handed? I'm right-handed. Thank God. We'd have to boot you off this pod. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, Aaron, tell the people, one, how are you and where are you? I am good, and I am in Sacramento, California. Okay. Sacktown. Mm-hmm. Sacktown, the Bay Area, the, and back down. Well, we're technically not the Bay Area. That's just a, I, and I'm yeah. from, I grew up in the Bay area. So Sacramento is not the Bay area We're we're central Valley. 
Um, as a music host of a music pa- uh, podcast, I have to just throw this out there that I know that, and I was just singing <laughs> a, tu- a Tupac song, the the West Coast, mm-hmm. yeah, song. We are northern. Um, you can say like Northern California. We're all okay. Northern California, but yeah, I grew up. I grew up in a city in the Bay, barely in the Bay, called Gilroy, which is okay. uh, just just south of San Jose. If you're um, if you're coming into the Bay Area. And you take the, uh, there's only a couple ways to get into the Bay Area from I-5. One of them is if you, you get to San Anella, where the big soup thing is. Everyone okay. sees the big soup. Take 152 and you'll enter into Gilroy in 40 minutes. So we're kind of like the entryway into the Bay Area. And we're also the garlic capital of the world. Oh, wow. Those, those are like really the only two interesting things about Gilroy. <laughs> so do you love or hate garlic? Garlic's garlic's amazing. How could anyone hate garlic unless you're a vampire? I have questions. Yes. Is this like you grow the most garlic or you eat the most garlic or like there's a garlic festival? Like oh, there what? is it. Well, there, okay. The, the reason it's a garlic festival has to do with like manufacturing and like I've, historically there was farming there and then it sort of became like highly manufactured there. So you smell garlic in Gilroy. Um, there was for a long time, there was a garlic festival and it was pretty massive, actually. Um, there was a shooting a few years ago, like right before COVID and uh, a couple people died. It's pretty, really sad. And then COVID happened. Um, there was no garlic festival for 2020. And then I think what ended up happening was uh, because of the shooting and because of COVID, they, they were like kind of ended the festival. Although that's very... Um, controversial and very upsets a lot of people. And I'm wondering if it's eventually going to come back because it's like a hometown, like pride thing, the garlic festival. I mean, everyone that grew up in Gilroy, myself included worked at the garlic festival doing something. (laughs) I think I did like a cleaning garbage, you know, you would like go around the festival. They had these big like barrels, which were actually garlic uh, barrels. So they smelled like garlic. Oh, nice. I was going to say, did you just reek of garlic? I you know the thing I've like had friends come to garlic uh, to Gilroy and visit me and they'd be like oh I smelled the garlic the second I got into town I'm like I don't smell it I smell it here I smell it over the airwaves yeah <laughs> I, no but I just threw a, a ton of garlic in my dinner um so yeah in honor of you I knew this was going to happen I did my research I know all about the garlic all right <laughs> Adam's totally... also Adam Davis my co-host is also from Gilroy so we. We've known each other since high school. He's a couple oh. years younger than me, though. Cool. Very cool. Um, he co-hosts and edits the In Defense of Scott podcast with you. He co-hosts. Our editor is uh, Chris Reeves. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's my bad. Yeah, yeah. Chris yeah. Reeves. Uh, ho- uh, well, he he has Scott Punk International's kind of yes. like a record label. Yeah. Um, and and our podcast. That's that's uh, that's his uh, that's his world of uh, Scott business that he does. It's a fantastic podcast. The The Vic Ruggiero is, I listened today. It is so good. And yeah. And you, you walk such a fine line of like, like music, ska geek, and then exploratory journalist. And it, yeah, it made my drive today so much better. There was a couple of really funny stories, but I think that I was, the thing that I was most proud of is that we kind of kept the conversation fairly serious and historical, which I think you know, leave Vic to his own devices and he'll just tell you funny stories all day long. Amazing stories. But I really wanted to kind of dig. There was a lot of questions I had about like the history and some of the stories behind the songwriting, like 
all the stuff with Tim Armstrong and uh, Hellcat, I knew some of that stuff, but I didn't really know what had happened to the silencers. We talked about that. That was a band yeah. that they did. And um, I didn't even know he played with uh, transplants. That was a surprise to me Yeah, for, that's for a very, very short while. Um, so that, a lot of that stuff was like really fascinating. And uh, that's what I was kind of after. But yeah, he threw in, he threw in a story about meeting the Wu-Tang Clan, which is probably the funniest story that has been told on in defense of ska oh man um i was texting abby the whole time at stoplights <laughs> people um <laughs> listen to this uh yeah so like i was saying before we we started that you gave us the courage to start this thing and um oh, oh okay <laughs> also i bet yeah abby has it closer than i do uh your when your book came out so we we have some with the podcast and then before the podcast, we have a lot of crossover connections because I'm in the, I'm a writer as well. So I knew a couple of people behind clash books oh, okay. who published your amazing, fantastic book. And are you grabbing? Yeah. I knew she had it close. Comes with a poster. At least the one I ordered us did. Yeah, it's because you pre-ordered it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so Abby and I grew up in Orlando, Florida. And at the time, and, some of the listeners, if you're playing a drinking game, take a drink because they've heard this. Um, at the time, we hated it. We couldn't wait to get out. I went to New York. She went on her winter journeys. and um, But now looking back, Orlando, Florida, surprisingly had a huge ska and punk scene. And uh, I, I'm not going anywhere with this, but nostalgic. And your book made me just further appreciate my youth. So thank you. Mm. Um, my band, we did, we did three tours and on our second tour, we did play Orlando and, um, totally bizarre show. I wish I could, I wish I could remember the name of the venue or maybe you'll, you'll know it. I don't know, but it was a church that did non-church shows. Does that ring a bell? It was like, we're a church, we're cool church. We're hippies. We let like punk shows happen here. As long as you follow some rules, but we're down with that. What year was this? 95 or 96. I mean, this is right at the time I was, I was 13. So that's I was, when we met. Yeah. yeah. And, and there was I, like nobody at the show. There was like 15 people. But yeah, I was like, <laughs> we went all the way. That was, we went all the way to Orlando and then, you know, came back up, up kind of a little higher through the, you know, or Arkansas and stuff. But yeah, that was our furthest out show. And I just remember going, that was, what a weird show that was. But um, that's proof that, you know, those whatever, 15 kids there uh, were so yeah. excited. You made the trip for some reason. Some reason. Know? Yeah. Because <laughs> you, you, you can only, especially driving, you can only go one way into Florida and the same way out. Yeah. You know? Uh, but yeah, looking back, we saw so many great shows, man. Uh, we were talking about recently the Ska Against Racism tour came through there. I, you know, mm-hmm. I had to hunt down shirts for that years and years and years later. Um, but yeah, Florida. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> uh, oh, so let's go back. Sacktown. Uh, are there any? You're the second person to be from or, or live there. For on the pod, his name's Trey Burt. Shout out Trey Burt. He moved to Nashville, of course. Are mm-hmm. there any bands in Sacramento that are you know need a shout out? Doing well? Should we look them up? 
What is your, what is your, okay. What's your guys' take on the highly um, polarizing Hobo Johnson? Uh, Abby's going through this. I have no opinion. You don't know. <laughs> Hobo Johnson's a rapper that, uh, yeah, kind of like I guess you could say like emo rapper that came up and blew up. Uh, uh, is it like 2018, 2019? No, 2018. And um, has fans that are just completely, totally fixated by him and has like the other half of the internet hates his guts and <laughs> belittles him to like a ridiculous level. Well, we already talked about murder, so... <laughs> But we're I knew hitting, we're hitting, hitting all the all the bullet points here. Bam, nailed it. But it was an interesting. It's interesting for me because I was doing. A, a, I was writing for the weekly, and I gotten to know his name's Frank. I gotten to know Frank before he blew up. I interviewed him for the weekly um, when he was just like you know just starting out, and then he uh, had this video go viral. It was for the song called Peach Scone. It was a it was a submission <laughs> to Tiny Desk, is what it was, and it just blew up like overnight and he got like a manager and a record deal out of it he did not win tiny desk although they did invite him on there i think because it was such a high profile thing and um yeah he he just had this big career um he's kind of been silent for a while i think through covid and he just played a few shows like recently and then um adam my co-host he has a band called omnigon and uh, there's scott punk you know, he, Adam used to be in a band called Link 80. So there, it's a yeah, similar yeah, style yeah. of ska punk. Adam, like a couple of weeks before the show that happened in San Francisco, Adam's like, oh, should I, um, should I text Frank and see if, if Omnigon can play? I was like, sure. I thought he was joking. I was like, yeah, of course, text him. And he texts me right back. He's like, oh, yeah, Frank says I can play. And then we keep talking about it. I think this is a joke the whole time. And then, like on like on the day of the show, I see like a like a set list, and I see Omnigon's like main support for Hobo Johnson. And I was like, that was that was serious. You, you, I didn't know you even had Frank's phone number. <laughs> oh my god, good for him. <laughs> we are firm believers in in and you are proof of it. Just and our uh, mutual friend Fred Armisen is proof. Just ask. It can't hurt if you're polite. The worst yeah. they can say is no. You know? Sure. If you're professional and polite, I, I feel like, you know, again, you, you'll get either a, yeah, sure. Or a, no, I can't make it. Or I can't make that happen. You know? Yeah. When Hobo was coming, when Frank was coming up though, there was a lot of like interesting sort of, um, I don't know what you would call it, like offbeat alternative hip hop stuff that was bubbling up in Sacramento. Like uh, the Philharmonic was another person. Philharmonic played that show. Very, very interesting, talented musician. Um, also, right right before Frank blew up, there was a, a rapper named Mozzie who got real big in Sacramento, but he was kind of more of like a like a more of a gangster rapper. He was he was like like he got so much attention as being sort of a, a return to form of like gangster raps back. You know how they always do that with rock and roll. They did that with Mozzie. <laughs> yeah, garage, uh, good. garage rock is back. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, speaking of garage rock. Do, have you guys seen the Instacart commercial with King Khan is the Mm-mm. song? So do you no. know a band King Khan and the Shrines or King Khan and Barbecue Show is one of his bands? No, no. Very, very cool garage rock. He's been on, he's a friend of the pod. He was on it when it was just a written series. 
um yeah so the song on this insta you'll see it immediately whatever i'm doing in the computer is it's going to pop up as soon as you go to instagram or hulu or whatever and it's king con so it's very cool and it's all garage rocky so mm-hmm. i hope you made some money from that <laughs> that's how you make money now yeah selling out. <laughs> aaron how do you feel about selling out um i don't know what selling out means anymore I think so. And I, selling out used to mean don't sign to a major label. Um, and it also, I guess, was even there, the gray area was like, well, if you sell out to a major label or you sell out to like maybe even Epitaph might be considered that sellout territory. The real test was, are you still playing the music you're, you, you always were playing? Are you, are you, do you have integrity as an artist? So maybe, okay, maybe you signed to Warner Brothers, but you put out like a, a punk rock record that's still in in line with what you were doing or maybe you didn't maybe you're trying to make a pop record so those were sort of the lines of sellout you know 25 years ago what does it mean now major labels don't like they don't really have the power they used to have i don't think they have the symbolism that they once had um making money is a lot harder with music now i think people who are younger than us i think might view like whatever you can do if you can, if you can make money playing music, do it because, you know, you're probably, you're probably music's going on Spotify and you're probably not making any money off of it. And people aren't buying albums in high quantity anyways. So if you, um, if the way you keep your band going is by uh, selling a few songs to commercials and licensing them to movies and whatnot, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's just, just what you have to do if you want to make music your full-time gig. Cause even touring, touring used to be sort of like, the one last final way that musicians could make money. But uh, I think that's, that's changed too since COVID and the inflation and, and all the other issues that have come about from it. So I guess what I'm saying is, I don't know, I guess it's like a means to an end. I mean, I don't think that there's like, it used to be that, Oh man, you're just trying to get into it for the money. I just don't even think that's really much of a path anyways. It's more like, can you, can you survive? Can you figure out a way to make money? Then I guess if, if you, if you care about your music that much and and you do that, that's great. Yeah. It's kind of like a double edge edge sword where um, artists have to work harder for less money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but they have more control, more creative control on their side. The real, the real debate now, the debate in, in, in our generation was selling out. The debate now for younger younger musicians and fans is uh, what the band stands for and what the band supports. So if a band has somebody, like the worst case scenario is like, let's say you have a, a band member that um, sexually assaulted somebody. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and you like don't do anything about it. You support them. You, you, you don't kick them out of the band or whatever. That's, I would say, more like what the real debate is now. And that's the kind of thing that fans will have very strong opinions about. Yeah. I was going to say, and it's half joking, half not, is that I think the new selling out is, is if you give your song to willingly to some sort of political campaign, either side, you know, living on a prayer. I, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, um, it makes me cringe a little bit, even though whatever I vote Democrat, it still gives makes me cringe a little bit when an artist goes all in on like a, 
a, a campaign song for the Democrat Party. It just still feels a little like, ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, I was just about to make a Fugazi joke, and it. Uh, <laughs> no, that the joke was there. I just couldn't make it with my words. Um, all right, so the, let's get to the important questions here. Oh, okay. I had these further down, but we're going to do a couple of rapid fire to to just you know ease on down the road. Okay, <laughs> Operation Ivy or Rancid? Operation Ivy. Good answer. I have an Operation Ivy tattoo. Hell yeah, they're my faves. Um, we're trying to do a show at Gilman in sometime. I don't know this year or next year, whatever. Um, offspring or sugar Ray. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. I guess I would have to choose offspring. I'm not really into either band all that much. I mean, I don't dislike them. Just not really my thing. So you love sugar Ray. We got it. Uh, <laughs> hey, not, not, not bad pop songs. <laughs> I'll say no, I just, we're just, yeah, yeah. Elton John or Phil Collins. I'm going to go Elton John, but I, I do like me some Phil Collins. Okay. Yeah. Carne asada or carnitas? Funny enough, both of those uh, were nicknames that were given to me when I was younger. But um, <laughs> I would say carnitas. My last name's Carnes. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Wait, who are um, <laughs> Ross, Marshalls, or TJ Maxx? I think I'll go with um, Marshalls. Okay. All right. There, there's no it's a very soft, very soft, very soft opinion. You went, you went right in the middle. I like it. <laughs> um, and that was our, Oh no, I have another one. Vans or Converse. Uh, I guess I'll go with Vans, but I think that's more of a, I guess the branding kind of just seeped in my head a little bit. Yeah, through the years. I, mean, yeah. I got it too. Okay. <laughs> I'm wearing Vans. Abby's probably just took her vans off, but she is wearing a real big fish hoodie. Uh, oh. <laughs> was that just for me? Or is it just wearing, what you normally wear? She was wear? wearing it yesterday too. <laughs> I tend to do laundry on the weekend and then I like have pajamas, the particular hoodie I wear for a week. So we're almost done with this one. <laughs> All right. Okay. When you were a kid, what was your cable situation? Hmm. Uh, so when my parents, when I was about junior high, we moved to the country. And when I say country, it's like still technically in Gilroy, but it's like, you know, you have to drive about eight to 10 minutes from where the city typically is considered to be the end of the city. So that meant that there was no like actual cable there. And there was no like TV satellite, but however, my parents got like a satellite dish. So we had satellite TV and um, initially it was like the wild west. It was just like, just, you would have to just like, there was no guide at first. You would just like try to figure out and the dish would move and then you would find stuff. And then eventually it got a little bit more systematic. And um, I remember, I remember watching uh, like, the first version, the first iteration of Comedy Central. Oh yeah, it was like I think it it went through a few names, and and the programming was interesting. It was like comedy. It might have been like Comedy Channel at one point. I know at one point it was called Ha, like H A. Oh ha. wow! And the logo was like a cartoon face, and then he would open his mouth and would say Ha, and the Ha would like come out of his mouth. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, and then eventually it became Comedy Central, but it was like. They had 
initially they just had like these like long talk shows where they would just have like these people like hosting these like three hour shows where they would just be riffing, having guests, um, like watching programs and commenting on it. And for some reason, I like that a lot. (laughs) We are probably a, the next iteration of comedy central that age, because, we, and we've talked about this on the pod where we, I think we came home from middle school and high school and watch, you know, comedy, but there was a lot of stand up. Yeah. A lot of stand up. Yeah. Ab fab. Ab fab and kids in the hall. And then like movies like airheads and stuff like that. I was really into stand up actually before when I was a little bit younger than that. Uh, I had a friend who had like HBO and all the, who used to have to like have cable channels to see stand up, Right. Yeah. And I had a friend who would just tape all that and we would sit and watch it. And uh, I was like obsessed with it. And it was like, there was like, there was full on like comedy show, like specials, but then there was like these like little half hour shows where they would cut together like five minute segments of these comedians. And they weren't like necessarily super big comedians. They were more like the working comedian level. And yeah, I don't, I don't know why I was so, so into it, but it was fascinating to me. Well, you're speaking our language. We love it. I mean, it's, <laughs> we're, you know, consummate products of, of pop culture and especially the nineties of just this. We like things because that was the only thing on. And, mm-hmm. and I think that also gave us an avenue of discovery. We discovered a bunch of cool shit. I remember liking things that like were so old, like Dick Van Dyke and all that stuff. And now I feel like generations don't go backwards as much as we did, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and we asked this, we asked dumb questions pertaining to this a lot, but do you know who Bridget Fonda is? Yeah. All right. <laughs> I want to say, like, I'm just going to touch back on the comedian thing. Oh yeah. I remember yeah. the absolute, my absolute favorite thing in that era of comedy that I ever saw was uh, Bobcat Goldthwait. Oh, yeah. And that was back when, that was back when he was like, you know, just crazy or his act was, I don't know if yeah. he himself was crazy, but just doing the, the voice and just, ex, just losing his mind on stage. I don't even remember what his material was, but to, to me as a kid, I was just like, Oh my God. We should all go back and watch some Bob old Bobcat stand up. Write this down down. He spends his weekends on NPR now. Yeah, I know it was a, uh, he kind of gradually lost the voice. Like he kind of was mm-hmm. like, did like a soft, version of it then he just then he just started talking like a normal person that was really weird for me to hear him talk like a normal person yeah i remember that as a child he's crushing it though he's like directed a bunch of stuff and oh yeah still he's still out into the in the pop culture like uh nightgeist yeah i I like i like his movies um what's the one he did with um robin williams um Oh, I don't know. It was the one, the premise is um, his son was um, uh, doing uh, like autoerotic asphyxiation and he dies, right, from it. And so Robin Williams decides to um, (laughs) uh, pretend or tell everybody that he died from suicide because he's embarrassed. And this whole, and his kid's like a little, like a little shit. Like he can't stand his, he's just like a little spoiled brat. And so he writes a suicide note and it's this beautiful suicide note. And everyone like 
thinks this kid's amazing and just holds all this like vigils and honors for him. And eventually it just drives Robin Williams crazy because he just can't stand that everyone thinks he was this awesome kid. World's greatest dad. That's it. You got it. What the fuck? How have I never heard of this? Or it came out, I know it, and then they didn't market it correctly like you just did. There's a scene near the end of the movie where Robin Williams is like running and like, I think, I don't remember why, but he's like taking off his clothes and he's jumping in the pool, but they play uh, under pressure to that segment and fantastic. One of my favorite songs already, but I feel like the best usage of that song in a movie is in that, is that, is in that movie. Like it, cause that, that song has a pretty intense, like emotional element to it, especially when Bowie comes in. Yeah. It's well-placed. Yeah. It looks like we're going to have to watch this film. (laughs) (laughs) Just blew my mind. Goodness gracious. Now, how do I follow up with that? (laughs) We were talking cable. I love a good movie recommendation. Okay. If you had to live in one chain pizza place, Papa John's pizza hut, Domino's, something like that, which would you choose for the rest of your life? I might go with round table just because I have like nostalgic sort of uh, memories of round table. There was like a round table in Gilroy and uh, it had like a full on arcade and like after soccer games, that kind of thing. It was like the go-to spot for like post soccer game gatherings and stuff like that. So Uh, that must be a West coast thing because I've never heard of round table. Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah. I mean, they're still around. There's one, uh, there's one near where I live and we occasionally will get some, but it doesn't like live up to what I remember it as. And, and I, I don't think to, even, yeah. No, I was going to say, I was going to make a joke. I was, uh, Sugar Ray is playing the whole time. <laughs> there. Hey, that's fine. I can handle some. <laughs> and it's just the four post bed song, whatever that, whatever song that is. Uh-huh. Every yeah. morning. <laughs> there's a halo hanging from the corner of my girlfriend's four post bed. Right? Is that nailed it? it? Okay. Yeah, nailed it. And that girlfriend must be killing it. Poor person. <laughs> That's like aristocracy, you know, regal. Okay. <laughs> Who does your taxes? I do most of my taxes. And I'm actually that's what I've been doing today, oddly enough. And then I I then I use an accountant uh, to finalize it. I highly recommend people use an accountant. Well, I, at least in my case, cause I have freelance, mm-hmm. I've done freelance writing. Uh, now with my book, you know, it's like, it's essentially the same thing. You have income and you have expenses. I prepare everything and give it to him, but you know, there's, there's questions. I don't always know if this is a acceptable write-off and you know, he, he signs off on whatever says, no, you can't write this off then he bears the liability as well. So I'm just saying like, if, if you have a job and you have a, and, and that's, and you have, that's your only source of income, then you can just do it yourself. But if you have any sort of thing where any kind of freelance thing or business thing, you got to use an account. I'm, I'm, I'm on a little like tirade right now. You got to use an account yeah. because, <laughs> because it'll maximize your ability to write off things and you won't accidentally write off things you shouldn't be writing off. I have an accountant as well, and I hand her 
a bag, like, you know, one of those a gallon Ziploc bags of mm -hmm. receipts and just oh. notes and post-it notes. And I go, you make the best judgment. Okay. I'm a much better client. Yeah. I give them like a nice word document, just full of information. Just lay it all out there. I made a stamp of my signature. I go, just do it. She, <laughs> she could rob me blind. I don't have any money. Uh, every so often, your camera zooms in on you, and, and it, it's always timed perfect. Are you hitting a button? No, it's 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 automatic, and I don't know how to turn it off. I've been trying to turn it off lately because it's it's if you're having like an actual serious like Zoom meeting with somebody you don't know very well, it seems like you're doing this dramatic zoom, and I'm just like, God, and I have to say something like, "It's my camera." So it's people listening. It's a slow zoom, like picture picture like a, a like a Hollywood film. And it's the scene where the dramatic actor is, is in the middle of a monologue, like a, an emotional monologue. And that camera zooms in ever so slightly emphasized. That's exactly what my camera does. Yes, but it's right when you pause. <laughs> okay, I think you'll like this question. Uh, maybe the best question ever. What is more dangerous, skanking while eating a pickle... <laughs> Or plugging in a plug with mustard on it. Hmm. I don't know. Is a plug with mustard? I mean, I mean, a plug with water. I don't know. If, I mean, I assume that must be dangerous. So I'm going to say the plug with mustard. But there might be properties in the mustard that neutralize the, the water in it. So I could be wrong. I don't think skanking with a pickle is particularly dangerous. Eating. You're eating the pickle, though. And you're really having a blast. I feel like you could skank with a pickle and not have an accident. And what's the worst that's going to happen? You just fall over. You drop your pickle. You drop your pickle. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay. I mean, pickles are really inexpensive, so not the worst problem. Yeah. I'm embarrassed to be here for this question. <laughs> that was such a good Inside baseball ska reference <laughs> that I am so proud of. Get ready. Podcast awards. Best question of the year. Uh, <laughs> um, what was the first music you ever bought? Okay. So my first, well, actually I grew up, I was, a, I was, a, I was grew up in the church. So I was lots of Christian stuff. I'm not allowed to listen to non-Christian music. Like supertones? <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, the, the, this is before then. This is by the time supertones came out, I was well out of the Christian stuff. So, um, we're talking like Petra. We're talking like Michael W. Smith. You know, like late '80s Christian music. Um, Golden Era. Yeah. Well, yeah. Amy Grant. Amy Grant. Uh, yeah. I guess she was still in the Christian music scene at that point. Yeah. Amy Grant. I saw DC talk live. That was definitely uh, funny. I did not like them at the time. I thought they were horrible. First. So like, as I, as I worked my way out of Christian music, I got, you know, I listened to some like safe, like fifties radio, different things. Finally, I was able to convince my mom to let me buy some just regular old CDs. My first two CDs were Tom Petty, um, What's the name of the, it's the album with Free Fallen. It's, I guess, his first solo album, right? That record, and then Midnight Oil, Diesel and Dust. And I, I stand by it. both great records. 
Yes, both amazing. But what's the Abby? If you want to look up that first Tom Petty record, now I'm so curious. Full Moon Fever. Full Moon Fever. Yeah. Um, after that, I started getting into uh, what we would call alternative music. I guess this is early '90s. I discovered um, a radio station in the Bay Area called Live 105. It's based out of San Francisco. It was. Um, this is before, so pre-Nirvana, there was alternative rock stations that were truly alternative. They played music that was not considered mainstream at all. And uh, like Midnight Oil was played all the time and Depeche Mode, which still wasn't really like a major, major band at, so, at that point. And so I was obsessed with listening to Live 105 and alternative music. And, and I got really into like, yeah, I got really into Depeche Mode and Cure and for that, that kind of music for a little bit. And then... Um, they called Live 105 before Nirvana. Again, I preface that because that changed alternative rock permanently. They called themselves, their, their slogan at the time was the rock of the 90s. And they, did that in, they did that in the 80s. <laughs> oh, wow. So clever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and like I would listen to the station and like I would know none of these bands, but I would just be sitting there like writing names down, you know, and discovering all this music and getting into it. And then I kind of sort of like, as I got a little older, I kind of transitioned into like wanting to know more of what was going on, like in the clubs, like club music is kind of how I referred to it when I was younger. And ska was the component, but ska wasn't the first one. It was like funk, a lot of like funk stuff. Like before Primus broke, they were like a big like club band in the Bay Area, Mr. Bungle. Um, there was other bands around them that weren't as big, like um, it was a band called Psychofunkopus and Fungo Mungo. Fungo Mungo got a major label deal, but it was a terrible record. Um, and then that, I think the bass player, if I'm not mistaken, of that band uh, went to either start or join uh, Third Eye Blind. And then he had, you know, then he got big. So it was just like a lot of those kind of bands, Limbo Maniacs. I was like really into that music. I don't know. I'm not sure if it was so much the music something about the culture of it and something about the fact that it existed in the clubs really appealed to me. But when I, once I discovered ska in that same area, essentially, I, I really just shifted and gravitated to that music. I think the only bands that I really con continued to listen to were Primus, Mr. Bungle, um, Fishbone. I had discovered in that era as well, because they, they definitely fit all both, both of those worlds. Um, yeah, actually, when I when I started listening to Fishbone and Mr. Bungle, I didn't know that what they were playing in some of those sections were ska. I didn't know ska was a thing, but you know, they I liked those parts <laughs> of those songs. You know, how old were you in, in this time you're talking about? I must have been um, maybe only maybe like fifteen or okay. Yeah, I mean, I. Like I said, with the, with the with the religious thing, I kind of had a little bit of a delay because I wasn't even really allowed to listen to this stuff until maybe 15, 14. So I, I know like a lot of people talk about going to punk shows when they're like 13 or whatever. That just wasn't on the table for me. You are too far out, too far behind. I think it's pretty you know normal. My first show was um, I was 16 when I finally got to my first show. And that was Living Color. Oh, yeah. That's cool. They played at the uh, San Jose Event Center, which is about uh, 
30, 35 minutes from where I lived in Gilroy. And yeah, it was, it was a great show. They, the only reason my mom permitted it was because it was me and my best friend, Rob, and his older brother, Ryan, who was only like a year older, he was going to go with us and he was going to drive. And she was like, okay, you can go with Ryan because Ryan's a responsible older. Ryan was the least responsible of the three of us. And he was an insane person behind the vehicle. He would do a thing where he would like put like a tube on his windshield wiper. So it would go out and he would just want to drive around and like shoot like water at like passerbys, you know, people on the side. <laughs> and I, I, I'm almost positive. I have a memory of us going the wrong way on a one-way street um, on the way home from that concert. So. And would you go from Gilroy, would you go into like San Francisco and Oakland to those shows? Is that eventually. We, eventually. Yeah. 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 Santa, initially it was San Jose. It was okay. And okay. So these funk shows. Santa Cruz a little bit. Yeah. yeah I didn't actually didn't, I didn't get to go to a ton of them, but I would, I knew people that were, went to them and like, they would just like, I would get tapes of like, Oh, okay. Live, live tapes or like where they, they would play like underground radio shows. So there was like a mystique to them that to me, some of it, you know, it's like this, these bands exist in this like other world and only like these select people at school even know of them. The rest of the kids don't know about them. And even I have like limited as- access to them. So I think that was part of, part of it too. I was also, I got into punk rock too, but I wasn't as much into punk rock as that stuff. Man. So two things. One, can you imagine how cool it must have felt to be the kid to break a band in like your middle and high school? Be like, here, check out this tape, everyone. <laughs> I, my big brother went to this show last night in the big old city. Here. Yeah, it must be so cool. Whoever did that is the 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 best. Like that was that was the thing with the Fungo Mungo. I mentioned them having a terrible major label record. They had there was this like live radio show on tape that I had where they were at least my memory of it is that it was amazing. Like just this, yeah. so fun and like loose and like funky and kind of a little silly, but kind of serious. And then um, I just listened to that tape all the time. And then they put that, the record came out and it was so just like stale and like way overproduced. I was just like, horrible. Wow. What a letdown. Yeah. I mean that, I mean, you know, talk about selling out again. That's like a thing. That is like something that bands did sometimes. It was like whether they were selling out or not, or just sort of utilizing the resources that were given to them and not really knowing how to utilize them. But that would happen sometimes. It's a band just lost everything in the process of releasing like a major label record. And then it didn't also, then it would not do well commercially as well. And that just like kind of killed the band. That's what happened with the spit valves. Uh, Aaron, do you know who the spit valves are? No, but I, uh, I feel like I know their story. <laughs> Did they go on to any success of their other bands? Uh, well, the the band that the three main guys are in, it's called the Attack. They're a punk rock band. They they're all up and down the East Coast, open up for a ton of people, Dropkick Murphys and uh, Less Than Jake all the time, like those type of band. You know, I'm sure you can imagine what type of band they are. Um, Something else I wanted to go back to, and it hit me, and I, I really want to get your educated take on it. You were talking about funk club bands in Bay Area, and I just thought of every Bay Area like rapper that I know is a little bit funkier 
Yeah, yeah. May have a horn section in a song or two. And I'm like, oh my God, just kind of put that together because all those rappers, Dynamite mm-hmm. of Peoples, Jurassic Five, our friend Lyrics Born, E40, they've they all have must have come up. What are your yeah, expert I, thoughts? I, I think that was a thing. Uh, Digital Underground, another yeah. one. I think it was, I don't know that it had to do with the bands, but I just think that there was a, a the, the uh, style was established by early, early Bay Area rappers. Cause I think rap has had more of a very localized like elements to it back then. So this is sort of like the Bay sound. This is the yeah. New York sound, whatever. So I think that, it, that ended up sort of being the, the Bay sound for a while. It's cool. It's a cool yeah. sound. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What what next uh, dumb question do we have? Do you own a robe? I do. Yeah. Do you wear it often? Is it an everyday mm-hmm. robe? Okay. I wear it fairly often. Yeah. Because I work it... at home most of the time. So. Yeah. Does it still have the rope? Yes. That you can tie. Mm-hmm. Is there a name for that? I don't know. You Abby knows it's a belt. A belt. Okay. There's no other specific like Roby belt name for it. Let's look this up. This is a fun, fun thing to do. <laughs> and while you're looking it up, um, what's your favorite book? Since you wrote a book, what's your favorite book? Um, for the last book you read, you can go with either. Uh, the last book I read was uh, a biography on Nico, which was oh, excellent. Nice. It's called You Are Beautiful, You Are Alone, I think was the title. Oh, yeah, I know that one. Yeah. It came out like um, like a year and a half or so Yeah, ago. it's fairly recent. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Oh, very yeah. in-depth. I did, actually didn't know a ton about Nico. I, knew, I mean, obviously, I was familiar with The Velvet Underground. I wasn't super familiar with her solo stuff, and I didn't understand its impact on uh, goth and, and a lot of other sort of macabre type of music that came out in the eighties and nineties and beyond seventies. But yeah, she played a big role in that stuff. Oh, I mean, they were very influenced by her, her solo work. Yeah. Uh, how do you, do you buy a lot of books? Abby and I have the same joke where, uh, you know, I have a stack on my you know nightstand or whatever, and it, it never gets any lower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do buy a lot of books. I can, you want to play a fun game. I'll, I'll show you my, it's not that big. Cause I, I have a stack of books. Then I have a list. Oh, I, I list love is it. huge. Love list. That way, yeah. But I'll show you the ones I have. Show us your stack. Oh, it's zooming. Oh, I know. See, these are my. So I have five to be read books. I have a Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain, The Loop by uh, Jeremy Robert Johnson. It's I believe it's a science fiction book. Strongman, uh, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy. My, my wife read it and recommended it to me. It's a profile on some fascist governments. Gives you a little insight into how the whole thing works. I thought it was a self-help workout book, yeah. but that's fine. Don't look, don't look back in anger. This is an oral history of uh, Britpop, basically. Oh, I bet you that's a load of fun. Um. Saturday Night by Susan Orlean. I believe that she um, what was very curious about what people did with their Saturday night in a, a different parts of the country. And 
explored that topic by traveling around? That's the premise as I understand it, but I, I mean, it might be a little different than that in practice. Writing some of these down, like I need more books. <laughs> <laughs> so many music books too, I, I have to read. Um, I'm reading right now um, An Oral History of the Making of Clueless. And it's loads of fun. Oh yeah, I, you got to tell me. Uh, do they get into the uh, Boston's part of the? They do. Uh, I'm actually just about. They're starting to allude to it, and they're getting ready for the scene to shoot that scene. And they were going to do it outside at a quote unquote frat party, but it was yeah. like June gloom. In it might have been a different part of the the year but it was raining it was raining like crazy so they couldn't do it outside so they had to move it into a location inside and like kind of change the narrative so it wasn't a quote-unquote you know frat party it's just i i can't remember i have some notes on that though because i had interviewed uh, nate albert the, the original guitarist and um it, and he, he he told me a little bit about that whole experience um, was it a positive experience for him yeah they felt they felt like it was fun and they felt like i think they had some I think they had some, um, you know, they, 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 I don't know if demands are the right word, but basically like some rules that they, you know, in order to do it, that they had to be able to play certain songs or for certain lengths. So that, I think there was some negotiating that went on so that it would be like worth their while. And I, I think it really actually did have an impact on their visibility. I've, I've, a lot of people have told me that they, uh, you know, of a certain age, discovered yeah. ska or Boston's through that movie. Um, and that was before they had a, like a legit hit single too. Cause their, their one legit single was impression that I get. And that came out two years later. Yeah. Oh, in my head, I thought it was like 10 years later. No, just <laughs> That's wild. Well, see clueless came out in 95. Ska was just kind of starting to creep into radio, but not in a significant way yet. So then starts to come out a little bit more in 96 and then 97 sort of like the year where you see most of the sort of mainstream ska stuff happening. This is one of the most important questions and, and I need you to be honest. Are you sick of answering ska questions? I'm not actually. I, I mean, I talk about ska on my podcast every week, so. I know, but like, well, let's say you're cornered in a kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> and and some weird relative goes what are you up to mm. oh i mean if i if if i was to have to have conversations with people that knew nothing about ska and i had to start from the beginning yes that would be kind of taxing <laughs> <laughs> but to have a conversation to have like conversations with people that at least have a basic understanding of what ska is yeah that, that's fine yeah and then follow-up question um when Ska broke in like 96, 97, like you were saying. Um, were you like us where we were like, oh yeah, we know all these fucking bands for years. Were you like snobby about it or were yes, you? Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> I was, I hated it. I hated the mainstreaming of Ska. In fact, um, No Doubt, when No Doubt broke, I was like, just like, I was, I was so angry about it. <laughs> when I'm just a girl, I can remember I'm just a girl. Cause I was a, I was really into no doubt, like years earlier than that. And um, it's, it was strange. Cause I kind of understand some of the history. Now they like released the album before that, like three years earlier. And then it kind of seemed like 
they disappeared. Um, you know, they would, they would roll through town occasionally. And then all of a sudden they release tragic kingdom and they, and, um, they start having hits on the radio. I now know in retro, I now know from studying this stuff that they were trying to make that record for a long time. And we're having lots of battles and struggles. They, they recorded it in multiple studios. Um, they were having like lots of tug of war with the label about it. One thing that they wanted to do for that record that they were not able to do is that they wanted Steve Bartek from Oingo Boingo to produce it. Oh yeah. And um, I was just actually talking about this online recently. The, the guy who produced the record was, um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's the one that uh, had that hit single in the eighties. The one that went, nobody gonna slow me down. Nobody gonna hold me down. Uh Oh, yeah, that guy. To keep on moving. So like a little, a little bit of a scoff flavor to that. Yeah, song. it's like a reggae, like binge. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> break I, I was, my stride. Break my stride is the name of the song. You're correct. And um, I was reading an interview with that guy recently, and uh, he basically the interviewer was like, "Oh my god, you had like a, you know, you had you you had this uh, ska tinge song, and then you worked with No Doubt, who were like ska band or whatever." How was that like? And he's like, oh, you know, I basically really tried to encourage them to uh, move away from ska as much as possible. <laughs> Granted, I think they were already on that course before him, but um, I still wonder what a Steve Bartek produced Tragic Kingdom would have sounded like. Because uh, got to go to the alternate universe. Yeah. Although I like Tragic Kingdom. Don't get me wrong. I think Tragic Kingdom's a great record. I love Sunday Morning. That Sunday Morning song is yeah. is amazing um mm-hmm. but yeah so we were of the ilk where we didn't like uh, i don't know now i don't think i'm so protective of the bands i i think are underground and i like but back then i was like there i've been listening to that band for forever yeah just, i i was just i don't know if i used the word sellout but to me it was it, that's essentially the, how i felt about all the ska bands that were on the radio um yeah i wasn't i wasn't a fan at all of of the the music breaking into the mainstream uh i didn't like it uh, i didn't like how it was being presented i didn't like people jumping onto it i think my opinion now is that i have a i don't i haven't gone like the other way per se i don't like i don't hold any issue with the bands themselves and um i i do understand that a lot of people who are a little younger than me discovered ska through it being on the radio and that some of them continued to be fans and supportive and would dig deeper, but I also think it is tricky when you have um, a '90s mainstream sort of system presenting a genre to their audience, and they're not going to do it justice, and they're not going to do it well, and they're gonna um, they're gonna always frame it as a trend. They're gonna frame it as like this is how you do it, and and ska was so complicated, especially by the '90s. Like it had already had gone such a long history of not just starting from Jamaica and then going to two-tone in England, but just the journey that it had in, in the U S for like 15 years before that was very complicated. There was just the, the, the traditional and the punk ska and then all the different flavors and just the, the way the scene had evolved in the U S it just, it was, it was just a weird thing. And I, I do think it like, I do think that the reason that like I would even need to write a book, in defense of ska or try to explain to people that, that this music is like worthwhile these bands and this seems worthwhile is because of 
it's it becoming an MTV thing for like a couple of years. It just people just got the wrong idea about the music. Like the idea that it was this goofy thing that it, the music like centered around goofy bands and goofy fans that all dressed silly. That that was a that existed, but the fact that the idea that it was like the primary scene that was because it was a mainstream phenomenon and that was the the vision that was the idea that people got from seeing it on mtv yeah carson daly scotter day or whatever i mean it's called. what's weird is like the bostones kind of got even lumped into that and because they were plaid and because impression that i get is kind of a such a produced pop song but they were they were such a like vocally anti-racist band and they would take anti-racist action on tour with them even while they were like mtv alt-rock sort of stars they were they were talking about the politics of ska but i feel like it it aside from the fans the fans probably got that but the people who weren't like super involved didn't catch that about the band and they still would try to like frame them as being kind of goofy and fun and you know they they sort of I can understand if I was a boss to, and I would probably feel like my legacy was like not presented correctly at all during that time period. Yeah. I, I think what us included the fans hold on to is the fact that we know if you're in, we, we, yeah, yeah. We, it's like you're in a secret club, you know, and you're like, yeah, let the, let the squares make fun, <laughs> make fun of it. And I'm using like, colloquialisms from the 50s or whatever but you get my drift yeah um <laughs> so important question and uh before especially before we wrap it up why do you think and this is just i lo- i would love your opinion on why do you think punk and ska are so intertwined they were inseparable in my youth mm-hmm. um and i you know i have my own opinions but i'm curious what you what you think well, I think that um, it was always, I think it was always in the cards because two-tone ska, ska revival, ska revival specials, ska revival was really a um, infusion of 70s punk rock and Jamaican music. So before the specials, ska music was Jamaican music. It was strictly dance music. And it probably would have stayed that way. It probably would have been music that was old, you know, that you look back on. It's like during the fifties and the sixties ska music, you know, was, was popular in Jamaica and people would probably like crate diggers would probably have pulled out those records and played it and stuff, but the specials and the other two tone bands revived ska and they revived it as a, as a kind of a punk thing. Like it was a deliberate thing. I mean, I was reading an interview or it was like, I was watching an interview with Terry Hall. When Terry Hall passed away, mm-hmm. he was talking about that. He was talking about how he, he didn't even consider the specials to be a ska band, that he, he considered them to be a punk band. Um, so I think that as two-tone was like much, much more of a significant um, thing globally than, than Jamaican ska was. And by that, I don't mean it's better. I just mean it was... Um, it reached a lot more ears than Jamaican Scott did. Not yeah, only did yeah. it become like top five, you know, top 
10 pop music in England. It just trickled into the rest of the world. Ska scenes formed because of two-tone in obviously in the US. I mean, there would have been no ska scene in the US whether or not two-tone. It, would, it, wasn't, it didn't come through Jamaican ska. Ska, two-tone ska spread all over Latin America, all over Europe, um, elsewhere. So they kind of established what ska was, I think, to the rest of the world. You know, some, some people would dig farther back, but they kind of got into ska through two-tone first. And so that, that music had elements of punk in it. So it was a natural progression that it, it would have an element of punk to it and that it would get more punk. You know, when you had bands like uh, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones and Operation Ivy were um, significant. I think Oper- Operation Ivy weren't the first band to be so such an overtly punk band to play ska, but they were the, the significance of them the way that it, like the way that that music affected people, I think really altered things. There was um, there was a band in San Francisco that uh, that happened almost at the same time as Two Tone. Just after they were called the Offs. Like it sounds like a punk ska band. Like they're playing yeah. ska, like in the same way that other bands were. Fishbone, I think. I, Fishbone, like Operation Ivy is more of an overtly punk type ska thing but fishbone is like they took they took ska like two-tone type ska and they they amped it up to a uh to a higher degree it was faster there's was, was more energy to it um there was a there was a band in spain called uh cortado i think cortado they were like an early like predated operation ivy sounded kind of like operation ivy um what's the other band i'm thinking of not Citizen Fish, the band that uh, Culture Clash. Is it Culture Clash? Yeah. Citizen Fish is an important band, but um, before them was, I think, Culture Clash. Or Cult, yeah. Anyways, if I'm messing up the name, sorry. <laughs> I get what I'm saying. The band pre-Citizen Fish, uh, they are doing like pretty, like, you know, a mix of ska and uh, punk rock and stuff and reggae. So, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, the reason, so I'll, I'll, I'll go a little further, a little deeper. The specials initially, Jerry Dammer's vision for the specials was he wanted to marry reggae and punk rock because reggae was popular in England and the, the politics of reggae and punk rock had like some similarities to it and some overlap in fans. But he could not like really make the styles work together vibe wise. It just, they were just too dissimilar. I mean, Bad Brains did did their own thing, but there was like, they had super chill reggae songs and then super fast hardcore songs. That's not what Jerry Dammers was trying to mix. And so I, he, mm-hmm. I think he realized that, you know, the ska music had the energy that could mix with punk and he could still like, you know, use reggae and, and rock steady and the politics of that was happening in, in both those music. So that, you know, they just fit. Man could listen to you talk forever (laughs) you have a very relaxing cadence it's very i just feel like i downloaded some some learnings in my Uh head um it's so you give these very profound answers and then i gotta look i look down and i have like a super dumb question just staring right back what's my favorite smoothie or something like that (laughs) what's the worst (laughs) thing you could put in a smoothie 
<laughs> is that a question or no, it's not okay. blue cheese is the answer though. Blue cheese. dressing. <laughs> um, do you have any warp tour horror or glory stories? I've never been to warp tour actually. What? I know. Wow. I wasn't, I wasn't interested in warp tour when I was younger. I just, oh, wow. it's weird. Cause we had, we've had Kevin Lyman on the show and I've learned a lot about warp tour, not just from him, but studying the stuff and, I just it was never fantastic, been. man. Yeah. It was, it, it had the, <laughs> the years I went, it was, it was something special, at least in my dumb, you know, brain. I, you know, was given like $20 and I, I came home without the $20. And I remember, uh, and this is at the fairgrounds in Orlando, like black boogers. I remember I, I had so much fun picking my boogers. What, what years did you go? I went. I'm going to guess like 97 and I would have to really think or look back at some, some journals or something 97 to 2000, like two. Do you know, uh, here's a, here's a fun fact, but I'll ask you, see if you know the answer first. Okay. Do you know which year Warp Tour sold the most tickets? I don't, that seems like an Abby question because I feel like you've probably, she's probably been to more than I have. And I'm going to guess last year. No, I, whatever they ended. I don't know. That's false. Not correct. You I, know, I would say early 2000s. Okay. The correct answer is 2005. Oh, wow. Yeah. That makes sense. The reason, the reason is, is that fallout boy and my chemical romance were on. And that happened right when those two bands had hit singles blowing up. Yeah. I, I was that a little one old in... that by that time. Were you at that tour? I saw that one in, oh, I was I either going, in Tampa or Jacksonville for that one. That, and it probably, no, my last was 2006. Uh-huh. So yeah, I went to either Tampa or Jacksonville for that one. Well, I'm, Abby, I think you could speak to this. At, uh, when it took that hard, like screamo turn, I was already like uh, no, uh, under no like decision-making process. I had just found other things to do. And yeah, so I missed that boat. I the did used. see Limp Biscuit. I saw the mm. used. I saw Eminem. I saw Green Day on. The- <laughs> I saw M&M. specials. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, Eighty. I'm sorry. Ninety eight. I think was your specials mm-hmm. headlined. Yeah. Yeah, that was it. Was big time. I should have worn my special shirt. Uh, so never been to a warp tour. Wow. Never been to a warp tour. I know. Are you gonna go to the? ska punk international in austin uh i wish i could it's just it's too too much of a trip for me right now and i got some stuff coming up like i got to save my travel money for i totally get it and this is just in case you wanted to give that a shout out but yes Um, (laughs) please but if you're listening you should definitely go (laughs) yeah you should and you should also read in defense of ska by aaron Carnes because that is oh i want to i want to plug something that's uh not well, it's, I guess it's sort of out there. I haven't like really launched it yet, but go for it. I, I wrote a second expanded edition of In Defense of Ska, um, and it's coming out in August. It's the same book, but it's got more, and it's got, and it's been, some of it's been edited and fine tuned. And now I have to have two copies of this. Yeah. And I have yeah. to, it's, I, and I, I added like probably way too much. Um, I, I don't know. There's like a, a novella's worth of additional uh, content in this book. Oh, wow. I can't even 
wrap my head around that. So I, I'll just full transparency. I've been saying forever per what I said about growing up in Orlando and having a surprise Scott scene and looking back and pleasantly, uh, you know, surprised. I was like, Oh, I always wanted to write like a coming of age novel about uh-huh. skater, punk rock, Scott kids in Orlando in the nineties. And then I read your book and I was like, I think I have to do this. Oh. It's so good. And it just gave me these like, you know, like it reminded me, it brought back memories I I had long buried. And uh, man, it's such a good book. If you like Scott or just if you love any music or and history and shit like that, it's so fucking good. Um, I will say this for anyone listening, just to like, you know, to can further like promote myself in my book. Yeah, that's. In my in my opinion, as a music book reader, it's a it's a unique style of music book because it's historical, but it also I insert my own like personal stories. So it kind of it sort of changes perspective. Like you'll have one chapter will be like a story of my band touring uh, some like shitty show in Texas, and my band is of no significance, no importance historically. It's it's only in there so, to sort of give you like a ground eye like ground level, like this is what it was like to be frontline. Front yeah. Line yeah. Level. It's not like this is an important moment. It's more like, yeah, just giving you a sense of how it actually felt. And then it would like shift to like being like very like deeply reported chapter, you know? So, and, it, and then it might be a chapter where it's like an essay on a topic where I'm giving you some like opinions and some thoughts. So you read chapter to chapter and it's like, it changes. It's, you're not, you're not like constantly in the same book. And I, I feel like proud of that. It's a unique thing and so in the second edition I, I added things throughout the book you know that I felt like maybe we're missing and then I wrote a whole long final chapter final final chapter sure I can't wait for a couple more it's years. like a kind of an epilogue I call it kind of an epilogue well when ska has a revival the fourth wave of ska you're gonna have to do it again so you know mm-hmm. <laughs> um Yes, the book has a very gonzo, uh, switchy narrative device that is uh-huh. great. Um, it only adds to it. I love it. Abby Thank loves you. it. Um, <laughs> everyone follow In Defense of Ska on Instagram and listen to his podcast. And the most, oh, wait, the band you were talking about is Flat Planet, right? Yeah, that was my band in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Very cool. We found some photos of you shirtless <laughs> online. Um, you know, you're ripped. <laughs> That's what the strongman book is about that you mentioned. Yeah. You're bringing it all back around. Um, <laughs> Bobcat Goldway is uh, going to direct the In Defense of Ska movie. That'd be mm-hmm. great. You should talk to him. I feel like yeah. he'd be down. If he's listening. He's a big listener. He's a huge yeah. listener. Oh. Um, I have two other funny, silly questions. One is what's your favorite Fred Armisen film? Mm. Let me think about that one for a second. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know what's funny, Abigail, is he can't. I, I I wonder if you're like this in your real life. Is like if can, he can't give a, a one word answer, which is a very cool thing. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I mean, I saw. Uh, I know this isn't a movie, but uh, I, I really like Los Spookies a lot. Oh yeah, that's so. Good. Can I can I say that as my? Oh, answer? of course. I said movie, but I didn't, I meant like any project. Okay. Los Spookies is great. Los Spookies, unfortunately canceled, kind of recently, I think. Right. Yeah, I don't think it got picked up, um, but that gives Fred. Well, Fred's on Wednesday now, which did get picked up, 
And uh, but Fred, if when you're listening, you were in a couple great bands. You should do Aaron's podcast. Yes. As well. I'll throw this out there. This is to Fred. Um, uh, we had John Bunkley from Gangster Fun, Detroit, Detroit's first ska band. He told me that uh, he used to play, they used to play with Trenchmouth all the time, and that you stayed at his house multiple times. So I, I got to hear, I got to hear the story. I got to hear the stories. <laughs> oh, I love it. We'll make it happen. Um, when's the last time you skanked? Um, let's see. I, I skank. I still skank when I go to shows. Awesome. You got to. I saw a uh, last, last Scott show I was at was Slackers at Cornerstone in Berkeley, uh, December. Um, and I did, I did a little bit of skank and I didn't do a ton, but I did a little bit. Um, you always got to do a little bit, even if you're a hundred years old. I'm pretty sure I caught COVID at that show because I tested positive the next week. And then I uh, tested positive the day I was supposed to go see Fishbone. And then I couldn't go. I wasn't that sick, but I couldn't go because I was positive. Nah, well, Abby's getting over it. She got it at a some show not too long ago. What show did you get it at? Ben Harper or something? <laughs> no, I got it at work. You got it at a No Doubt show? I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Uh, Aaron, if you could interview, if you could bother any musician, live or dead, who would you bother and what dumb question in the vein of bothering the band would you ask them? I mean, aside from Fred Armisen? Yeah. Whatever. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give away your questions. You're going to get... No, I won't, I won't give away the question. Um, musician, let me think. I don't know. Let's see. Obviously, Jerry Dammer, some specials would be uh, high on my list. I, I don't think he's all that keen on doing interviews very often. And I don't think he particularly cares for, uh, you know, Americans. So that's what I gathered from reading about him. Fair enough. He hated, uh, he, he hated touring the U.S., by the way. And then uh, did, you know, did you know specials played Saturday Night Live and, um, and in like 1980 or whatever? And uh, he refused. He absolutely refused to... to get into the limo that was uh, provided for them to escort them to the show. He was just disgusted mm-hmm. by the whole thing. Did he take the subway? I wonder. I, I, I can't remember. Did he take a taxi? Maybe. I, I don't remember what happened. I just remember the whole thing. Just hated it. Oh, wow. When they played um, in LA, they played at the, uh, the whiskey or Roxy. I can't remember which. And they were there for five days. And, um, the club, I think, or the Chrysalis, the record label, the U.S. Um, the U.S. department or whatever that was there, they like put checkers all around the club as like a sort of like, hey, we love you, this is for you. And he was like, this is bullshit, this is gimmick. We're not about gimmicks. Like he was just angry. Oh wow, stick to your guns. That's not that's yeah, the, yeah. That's a definition of not selling out. Way to go. <laughs> so I don't know what I don't know that I have a question in there and everything I just said, but. I'd love to hear his point of view, if that's all true or not. If he owns any checkerboard, like slip-on vans or something. No, I'm, I'm actually seriously, I'm seriously curious if he like legitimately 
just tested his time in, in the U.S. And, uh, yeah. you know, he, he never really he never really pursued a U.S. audience after. And, uh, you know, some of the some of the some of his peers in the two tone bands did when the two tone bands were reviving in the 90s, when there was this, like a legitimate ska scene in the U.S., he never participated. The specials like reunited with every member but him. <laughs> oh man um yeah i want to know where the hatred comes from I, <laughs> let's try to we'll, we'll get him on too yeah let's get him on <laughs> um and then and then what is the besides the extended version uh-huh. of the book what is the future hold for aaron carnes um i am trying i'm working on a new book but I, I it's not like a done thing yet so i can't really say anything publicly because it may not happen it's but, about you know. swing music it's the swing uh, revival of the nineties. That's what you should do it on. All I can say is that it is a music, it is a music book. And that's all I can say. Cherry Papa daddies. Yeah. <laughs> which, which as an adult, as a father of a, of a, of a little girl that it, I had no idea that band name was so problematic. You know, the, the first time I saw that band, actually the only time I saw that band was uh, in 92 they were, I saw Skank and Pickle. That was the band I went to see. And they were like the like first or second opening band. They weren't like, they weren't a known band at the time. And they were billed as the daddies. Right. Oh, somehow worse. And I was like, <laughs> oh, and, and so they were like dressed up like in shirts and shorts. They weren't, they weren't wearing zoot suits and they played like ska, funk, jazz. You know, they just kind of played a bit of everything. And uh, I remember I was like, oh, this, this band's pretty good. And I bought their tape. And then um, all of a sudden they like the Cherry Pop and Daddies, which I guess they were the Cherry Pop and Daddies. And then they were the Daddies. And then they were the Cherry Pop and Daddies. And then they were like the swing band with like this wearing suits and everything like that. So, yeah. Um, Squirrel Nut Zippers were kind of like that, where they they had the one swing song. And then, but if you listen to them, they had a bunch of cool ska, jazz, like in punk and yeah. And, the, and their 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 single was really more of like a calypso song. If you, think, yeah. if you like really listen to it, it's not really jazz or swing. And they were really more kind of into like old blues and you know they're great. They're still yeah. great. Yeah. Um, the whole swing. I only know about the swing stuff now. I wasn't into it at all. But Ken Partridge uh another he, he wrote a book uh shortly after mine just in like unintended timing called uh hell of a hat and it's about ska and swing so his ska chapters were stuff i pretty much already knew but his swing chapters were all in stuff i didn't know because i wasn't interested in that and it's kind of interesting to hear like some of these bands came from different scenes Nobody was really, nobody was really swing. It was like, they were into like, you know, jump blues. They were into all these old different kinds of music. And then they, they sort of coalesced around the same time in the mainstream, again, called it swing. The swing thing actually was much, much bigger than ska. Like Cherry Pop and Daddies and those bands, they were selling like millions of records. They were, but that thing like kind of rose and fell in a much more significant way than ska because because the ska scene was a much more the ska scene was older and it was like there was a lot more bands and it was had a lot more support 
So I think when ska was stopped being mainstream, even though people were saying it was dead, it didn't, it didn't really die because there were still a ton of bands and a ton of people that liked the music. So, but whereas the swing bands, I think they were, they were sort of on islands unto themselves, like the, the six or seven bands that broke. They weren't really from these massive scenes. So it was, and then everyone got into swing dancing. It just, uh, it was way more of a trend. Sort of. Yeah. You're just further digging a hole that your next book is a swing book. Um, so, okay. Besides the, the book you can't mention, we can't wait to when that breaks, but uh, what, anything else you got coming up or want to throw out into the world? I mean, I'm just trying, I guess I have a few things I'm considering, but I'm, I, I'm a lot of me, a lot of it's, I'm trying to see if this book thing is going to happen. Cause that's, if the book thing does happen, my, my life's going to kind of revolve around that for a little while. Of course. So I got to have to kind of hold off on everything else. Um, the second edition comes out in August podcast is still going. Um, we're still just working hard to grow the podcast and, and keep getting, you know, new and interesting guests. And so there's definitely a lot of energy going into that. Yeah. Well, we love what you're doing, man. And we're not the only one because you're, you're just killing it. Um, and I have to ask, and yeah. I don't even know if we can make it happen. What, and can we put a flat planet song on this episode? <laughs> yeah. 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 That's fine. Do you, you can play uh well, you can play whatever song you want, but if you want to play the song, there's a couple that I sing. So which ones, which one well, do you then, want us to use? Well, there's two I sing and, you can you can choose. Well, we'll, we'll okay. I'll I'll choose. <laughs> there was a song I sang that was on the Misfits of Scott Two comp. That was probably the most out there song, and that's called uh, "Mr. Good Buddy." I was not the lead singer, but I did sing that song. And I would um for that song live, our uh, sax player Jeff, our alto sax player, he would go behind the drum kit because he could play drums okay, and he would play drums so I could go in the front of the stage and be like like the temporary lead singer. And, and perform the song and a so church in orlando at, florida a church in orlando florida yeah actually i can kind of remember yeah that the church elder people they just like got down when i remember playing that song yeah it's gonna if anyone's gonna find it you're gonna find it <sighs> music it's such a good time machine though <laughs> We'll figure it out. And if she's already going, this is this has been a fantastic show. I feel like if if I ask any more, if we just do a deep dive, if I if I segue at all, we're gonna be here for end up. We're gonna turn it into Joe Rogan here for fucking two two more hours. He has a really long podcast. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, Abby. <laughs> um, he has a really long podcast. This has been a great fucking episode. Aaron, thank you so, so, so much for for letting us bother you. Oh, thank you. Thank both of you. Yes. Oh, I, it was a pleasure being bothered.
stop. Don't mock me. Or I'm an awesome team. Don't you wanna be like me? Don't you wish you were like me? Don't you wanna be like me? Don't you wish you were like me? Don't you want to be like me? Don't you wish you were like me? Don't you want to be like me? Don't you wish you were like me? Hey buddy, hey buddy.